True crime, unsolved cases, strange disappearances. Join me as we travel through the timeline of some of the darkest acts in human history. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and welcome to the first season of The Deadly Countdown. Episode 5, David Mark Chapman, John Lennon's Killer. He was shot late this evening in front of his apartment building in New York City. Apparently, he was killed almost immediately. The man who shot John Lennon walked up to the musician as he was leaving his limousine. According to eyewitnesses, he said, Mr. Lennon, and then fired at him point blank at least five times. The audio that you've just heard was ABC News announcing the murder of one of the members of the most famous band in the world. Singer, songwriter, husband and father, John Winston Lennon. Lennon was murdered in cold blood on the doorstep of the Dakota building in Manhattan where he lived by an allegedly deranged fan, Mark David Chapman, who only hours before had posed beside Lennon for a photograph after asking him to sign an album. Usually we consider nature or nurture when looking into the mind of a killer. But in this case, we travel down so many roads we may well need a map. Theories on why Chapman carried out this assassination are varied and wild. Yet, for many of them, the closer you look, the less wild they seem. I'm Kevin Eustace and welcome back to The Deadly Countdown. From the interesting to the unsolved, from strange disappearances to downright mysteries, we will cover everything on this show. And this week, it's the turn of the murder of John Lennon, a fellow Liverpoolian murdered in cold blood on the doorstep of his home. But before we dive into the life of Mark David Chapman, Lennon's killer, I need to give a quick thank you to our newest team members over at Patreon. By joining our crime club over on Patreon, not only will you receive these episodes both ad-free and a day before general release, but you can also gain exclusive access to the Patreon-only podcast, Cold Case. Cold Case is a fortnightly Patreon-only podcast, taking a look at both unsolved crimes and also taking a deeper dive into some of the past episodes. Our first episode of Cold Case will air a week this Sunday, and more about that at the end of the show. We want to build a wonderful, like-minded, true crime community over at Patreon, and we'd love to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown, just like the following wonderful new team members have. Noah Chilton, Carissa Nicole, Beth Whitaker, Mary Joseph, Sam King, Maniko Ferrell, Susan Burkholz, Angie Hackett, Morag Woods, Kathy Wilkins, Keith Dale and Hilary Glover. Thank you so much for being the founding members of our society over on Patreon. I hope you enjoy all the early ad-free releases and, of course, those cold case episodes. And so, if you'd like early ad-free releases, a shout-out on the show and, of course, access to the Cold Case podcast... Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown. But right now, 
we're going to take a look at what turns fandom into obsession, into fanaticism, into murder. For David Mark Chapman, let's start the clock. Born to parents David and Diane Chapman, Mark David Chapman was brought into the world on May the 10th, 1955, in Fort Worth, Texas. David Chapman, Mark's father, would leave the Air Force, and that would cause the family to relocate to Georgia, where David would secure a role as an engineer, and a young Mark would enroll at Columbia High School. Mark's mother, Diane, was a nurse, and by all accounts, she, Mark, and his younger sister, Susan, all lived in a perpetual state of fear due to their father's abusive behaviour. Mark, even at such a young and fragile age, felt compelled to protect his mother both emotionally and physically. Former friends would recall instances where his father would be so enraged at the young Mark Chapman, he would beat him mercilessly with his fists, throwing punches with force as if he were fighting a man his own size and not a child. It's not unusual for children who feel powerless to create an imaginary world, one where they feel they at least have some form of control. On top of such trauma, Mark was also bullied relentlessly at school. With not too many friends, he began inventing them, creating an entire community of invisible subjects, subjects that he ruled over in his mind. It's actually not uncommon for adults to even create such a world themselves, especially when they feel like they control nothing in their own lives. But often, these worlds are short-lived. However, for Chapman, the world he created existed for an unusually extended period of time. Apparently, he even sought the guidance of this imaginary community in the days prior to murdering John Lennon. But back to the young Mark Chapman and the community he's just invented. In this world, he was the king. He was the judge, the jury, and the executioner. If his subjects were cooperative, he would play them songs by his favourite band, The Beatles. If they were uncooperative, he would round up the bad guys and press an imaginary button to execute them all. A no-nonsense monarch who reigned over an empire that existed only in his head. By 14, Mark was skipping school, and by 16, he ventured into LSD. Around this point, the Beatles themselves were experimenting with psychedelic drugs, and Chapman, who idolised Lennon, grew his hair and adopted the full-blown hippie persona. Peace, love, and, according to those who knew him, a narcissistic personality. You see, it wasn't just the musical talent of John Lennon that Chapman admired and wanted to emulate, it was the idolization, because Chapman believed he was just as, if not more so, special than the outspoken Beatle. 
Therefore, surely, it would just be a matter of time until his dreams were realised. However, Chapman clearly had an as-yet undiagnosed condition. He would wake one day and feel as if he owned the world, and the next day feel worthless. In the summer of 1971, an incident took place that destroyed the Chapman hippie identity and changed the entire path of his life. Whilst enjoying himself at a hippie gathering on a local beach, Chapman believed someone had gone through his belongings, and he was devastated. It was all a farce. This trust, love, peace, this entire movement. To him, it had been smashed to pieces. And Chapman's mental state wasn't far behind. He thought himself worthless. How could someone think so little of me to do this to me? That week, as he remained on his couch, every ounce of self-worth ripped from him. Chapman metaphorically ended the life of Mark David Chapman, the hippie. He reached out his hands and called out to the Lord Jesus Christ to enter his life. Now, to a narcissist like Chapman, he wouldn't just have a slight sense of faith appearing. No. According to Chapman, he felt that Jesus himself was in that very room. He wasn't just to be a Christian. Oh no, he was to be a person of importance in Christianity. Chapman the hippie was dead. Long live Chapman the evangelical Christian. But there lay a problem. You see, just a few years before, his musical idol had declared his band bigger than Jesus. And although at the time Chapman the hippie had overlooked that statement, Chapman the Christian couldn't reconcile this blasphemy and it began to slowly nag at him, despite still being a fan of the Fab Four. Mark tried his hand at a number of different professions, but he realised he felt more useful working with kids. He thought that children were a lot simpler to engage with than adults, and so he began working as a summer camp counsellor at the YMCA in South DeKalb County. During this time, he also began dating a girl by the name of Jessica Blankenship. To say he excelled in this role would actually be an understatement. The kids loved him, and he loved them right back. The staff praised his commitment, and eventually he was even promoted to assistant director. Such was his obvious passion for the work he was doing. Chapman relocated to Chicago for a period, having a successful stint working with Vietnamese refugees at a camp in Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, following a short trip to Lebanon for similar work, again with children. He was appointed as an area coordinator and played a crucial role supporting the program director, David Moore. Moore later acknowledged Chapman's genuine concern for the children and his diligent work ethic. 
Now, despite Chapman's eventual heinous crime, it should come as no surprise to anyone that he found a bond with children who'd been through some sort of emotional turmoil. Despite the horrific mental conditions that were festering within him, he clearly had a lot of empathy. Give him adult life, and he didn't know what to do, but place him in front of a child who'd endured a similar emotional trauma to him, and he was in his element. Maybe it was because he was speaking from a point of knowledge, a point, if you will, of power. The attention and smiles he received from these small children giving him that small sense of being someone's idol. After being recommended the book by a friend, Chapman seemed to forever have his head in the pages of The Catcher in the Rye. The 21-year-old Mark Chapman found a kindred spirit in the novel's protagonist, Holden Caulfield. The book became his constant companion, a reflection of his own inner turmoil, During this period, Chapman was enrolled at Covenant College, a bastion of evangelical Presbyterian education, nestled in the serene heights of Lookout Mountain, Georgia. He had initially journeyed there with his then-girlfriend Jessica Blankenship, but as fate would have it, he would end up cheating on Jessica. This affair took its toll on Chapman. His academic pursuits crumbled under the weight of his guilt, and he was consumed once more by a sense of worthlessness. Even contemplating the bleak prospect of suicide. His tenure at Covenant College was short-lived, and after just one semester, he withdrew from the institution. In the wake of his departure, Jessica severed their ties, and their relationship ended. Attempting to regain some semblance of order, Chapman returned to his role at a children's camp. But even this was short-lived, after a confrontation with a manager led to his abrupt resignation, leaving him adrift once more. This series of events marked the beginning of a dark descent for Chapman, one that would eventually lead to tragic consequences. With things once more beginning to unravel, And coupled with his persistent depression, Mark devised a plan to travel to Hawaii, where he intended to exhaust his life savings and try and enjoy himself, and then take his own life. In 1977, whilst in Hawaii, Mark attached a pipe to the car's exhaust, placing the other end through the driver window and started the engine. A clear and deliberate suicide attempt by inhaling carbon monoxide. However, the hose melted, resulting in the failure of this attempt. Also, a passerby intervened and, realistically, saved his life. Nevertheless, this was a grave and determined effort, leading to his admission to a psychiatric ward of a local hospital and a diagnosis of clinical depression. After his discharge, Mark, in some vain attempt to try and see the world how he felt others saw the world, booked himself a trip around the globe. Well, Asia and Western Europe, to be precise. This six-week stint done little to open his mind as he wished, 
as the saying goes, you always have to take yourself with you. And in truth, given how unstable Chapman, I believe at least, knew he was becoming, I think it was himself that he was trying to run away from. The trip did have one positive for Mark, though. Now aged 23 and still grappling with a serious mood disorder, he managed to form a relationship with a travel agent who arranged his trip, a Japanese lady by the name of Gloria Abe. He would later marry her on June 2, 1979. Now, while it might have appeared that Mark had overcome his depression, found love, and gained new employment at Castle Memorial Hospital, working for the hospital as a printer, the reality was he was still a victim of a severe mood disorder. His office, located in the basement of the hospital, was perfect for him, because it meant minimal communication with meddling adults. Ironically, healthy social interaction is pivotal to conditions such as his. Yet his narcissism told him he needed, nay deserved, his own space. Something to own, something he could control. Now perhaps it was the isolation. Maybe his illness was misdiagnosed, or at the very least, he was insufficiently medicated. But either way, Gloria saw a resurgence of his paranoia. An argument regarding hierarchy with a nurse in the hospital led to his termination from that position. And with misleading references, he managed to land a job as an overnight security guard at a rather high-brow apartment complex, 444 Nahua Street, Waikiki. As is often the case with people both misdiagnosed or insufficiently medicated, he started self-medicating, developing a heavy drinking habit. Gloria stated that Mark's behaviour towards her was often wild-eyed, animalistic and occasionally physically aggressive. His anger seemed to constantly loom over their relationship. His mood swings were extreme, ranging from moments of exuberance to sudden thoughts of self-harm, patterns aligning with the symptoms of bipolar disorder, something his current medication was clearly not enough to handle. Chapman's overriding narcissistic opinion of himself as something other started revealing itself in obsessive behaviour. He would go into debt buying expensive pieces of art, only to panic sell them at a cheaper cost as his mental state roller-coasted. During the daytime, he would visit libraries. He was better than this life. He had purpose. Surely God would... Chapman smiled. There it was. In mint condition, his favourite book from college, The Catcher in the Rye. A cheaper obsession than buying expensive art but arguably a much deadlier one. As once more, Chapman began reading and rereading The Trials of Holden Caulfield. Still a reborn Christian, Chapman would join his local church group, engaging in dramatic and arguably over-the-top conversations 
about one John Lennon, asking the group's opinions on what he now deemed Lennon's blasphemous bigger-than-Jesus statement. Members of the group recall Chapman becoming so animated it was untrue when discussing this particular topic. He changed the lyrics to John Lennon's Imagine, using the words, Imagine there's no John Lennon, nudging the other members of the group to sing along with him. Just as he felt betrayed by the whole hippie movement, Chapman felt a genuine personal betrayal by John Lennon. The man who, in his eyes, sung about love and peace and then went back to live a millionaire lifestyle. To Chapman, he went from hero to hypocrite. Chapman himself is quoted as saying, He told us to imagine no possessions, and there he was. Millions of dollars and yachts and farms, country estates, laughing at people like me who believed the lies and bought the records and built a big part of their lives around his music. Chapman felt like he owned part of John Lennon, almost like he was a shareholder who'd been frozen out. Post-arrest, Chapman claimed, I would listen to his music and I'd get angry at him for saying he didn't believe in God, that he just believed in him and Yoko and that he didn't believe in the Beatles. That was another thing that angered me. Even though this record had been done at least ten years before, I wanted to scream out, Who do you think you are? Saying these things about God and heaven and the Beatles. Saying he doesn't believe in Jesus and things like that. At that point, my mind was going through a total blackness of anger and rage. So I bought the Lennon book home into this catcher-in-the-rye milieu, where my mindset is Holden Coalfield and anti-phoniness. But back to the overnight security guard, sat drunkenly at his desk, re-reading catcher-in-the-rye for the thousandth time. He closed the book, put on his jacket, and on the sign-out sheet, he wrote the name John Lennon and then left. Four days later, Mark David Chapman drove to a downtown Honolulu gun shop and purchased a 38 caliber handgun, similar to the stub-barreled guns preferred by police detectives. Because security guards are, well, security guards, the permission was granted in a timely and uncomplicated manner by the police. Mark Chapman moved to New York on November the 1st, 1980, to fulfil his still-forming masterpiece. The only thing he knew for sure was he needed to become Holden Caulfield. And to do so, he needed to rid the world of phony people. And to him, the phoniest of them all was John Winston Lennon. There was one problem, though, and it was a big one. New York, for all its freedom and glamour, wouldn't sell live ammunition to the general public. A Hawaii security guard pass wasn't going to cut it here. So Chapman flew to Atlanta, picking up a handful of arguably the most lethal 
type of bullets available. Hollow point bullets. Designed to expand inside the target after penetration. Picture a standard bullet firing through, say, 4-inch thick ballistic gel. Generally, it's a clear path straight through. Obviously, it could still be deadly. However, a hollow point bullet would leave a hole the size of your fist as it went through decimating organs and arteries and any chances of survival. However, on returning to the Big Apple, Chapman, still forming his plan, decided to take in a film, Ordinary People. The film, Robert Redford's directorial debut, focused largely on how ordinary people suffer with the strains of mental health. And after leaving the cinema, this film had a profound effect on the now would-be assassin. He even flew back to Hawaii. He spilled his plans to Gloria, even placing the gun and the bullets in front of her. It was as if he knew he'd crossed the line. Gloria decided against going to the police. Instead, she arranged for Mark to see a psychologist in a few days' time. However, what she didn't realise was that time was the worst thing someone like Chapman needed. Time allowed his bipolar to jump in, for him to question his own questioning. And when an individual like Chapman falls into that tornado of logic chasing, only one persona comes out. And it's not the individual who left the cinema with a sense of perspective. It's the narcissist. You are special. You do deserve to be as famous as anyone else. And so, on December the 6th, as Gloria shouted through to see if Mark would like a morning coffee, Mark David Chapman was checking in to the Sheraton Hotel in New York City. On the morning of December the 8th, Chapman checked out of the Sheraton Hotel. But before he went, he concealed some of his personal belongings, fully aware the police would discover them. He even went out and purchased a book of The Catcher in the Rye, and inside he wrote, This is my statement, and signed his name, Holden Caulfield. After that, he spent most of the day conversing with fans and the doorman of the Dakota apartment building, the home of John, Yoko, and their son, Sean. Later on that morning, as he still stood amongst the other fans gathered outside, he noticed the housekeeper, who worked for John. She was coming back from a stroll with young Sean, who was just five years old at the time. In front of the housekeeper, Chapman extended his hand to shake Sean's and eerily referred to him as a beautiful boy, paraphrasing John Lennon's song about his own son. Chapman crossed back over the road, sitting on the curb, holding his copy of Lennon's latest record, Double Fantasy. John and Yoko, at around 5pm, left the Dakota to attend a recording session. As they got to their limousine, 
Chapman took a deep breath and grabbed his copy of Lennon's record Double Fantasy, requesting an autograph. Amateur photographer Paul Goresh caught what is now a haunting image of Lennon signing the copy of the album with a clearly starstruck Mark Chapman stood just to the side. After signing, Lennon even asked if there was anything else Chapman wanted. Chapman clutched the album to his chest and smiled and shook his head nervously as John and Yoko got into the limousine and drove away. Heading back to the curb on the other side of the road, no one knows what went through his mind over the next five and a half hours, flitting back and forth between murder or running. Chapman claims, surprisingly for a born-again Christian, he prayed to Satan himself to give him strength to end this phony's life. At 10.50pm, with Chapman now only amongst a few straggling fans left outside, a limousine pulls up to the now infamous gothic red brick archway. Accounts vary, but the most popular one is that Chapman shouted, Mr. Lennon, before crouching on one knee for accuracy and firing five times at John Lennon, four of which hit Lennon in the back and shoulder area. But remember the bullets we're talking about here. With four of them in his torso, the writing was on the wall. As the doorman attempted what he could with the barely breathing Lennon, Chapman calmly sat back on the curb, pulled out the catcher in the rye, and began reading until the police arrived. On their arrival, the NYPD recalled Lennon's injuries being so severe that they decided waiting on an ambulance would be the wrong move, so they put John in the back of the car. They sped towards the Roosevelt Hospital, attempting to keep him conscious. They asked him his name, John Lennon. He spluttered in response. The last words uttered by the voice of a generation. John Winston Lennon. Claiming to be made out of two personalities, the main being Holden Caulfield and the second being Satan himself, the likelihood of anything other than an insanity plea coming from the defence team for Chapman seemed minimal to say the least. In those six months leading up to the trial, Chapman was interviewed by more than a dozen psychologists and psychiatrists, three on behalf of the prosecution, several more on behalf of the court, and a total of six for the defence. Five of the six defence specialists agreed that Chapman was psychotic, while the six agreed but thought his symptoms were more indicative of manic depression. His delusions were not severe enough to be labelled as psychosis, according to the three prosecution specialists. And both the prosecution specialists and the court-appointed expert agreed that, although delusional, he was legally competent to stand trial. After Chapman's first lawyer removed themselves from the case following death threats, Chapman's newly appointed attorney, Jonathan Marks, advised him to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. But by February, Chapman had sent a handwritten note 
to the New York Times, asking them to tell everyone to read the catcher in the rye. Jonathan Marks pointed at that letter as a further sign of his client insanity. Nevertheless, in June, Chapman expressed his desire to abandon the insanity defence and entered a guilty plea. Jonathan Marks raised concern about Chapman's mental stability and, given his entire argument was based on Chapman being insane, he legally contested Chapman's ability to make his own choice. During the subsequent hearing on June the 22nd, Chapman said he'd received divine instructions to enter a guilty plea and stated his unwavering commitment to maintain this plea, stating he would abstain from any further appeals, irrespective of the imposed penalty. Despite objections from his own lawyer, Judge Dennis Edwards Jr. stated that Chapman had been deemed fit to proceed with the trial and therefore his guilty plea would stand. At his trial, the judge asked if Chapman wished to make a statement prior to sentencing. Chapman rose and read a passage from the catcher in the rye. He said, I keep picturing all these little kids playing some game in this big field of rye and all. Thousands of little kids and nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean, except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What I have to do, I have to catch everyone if they start going over the cliff. I mean, if they're running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and catch them. That's all I do. All day, I'd just be the catcher in the rye. The judge sentenced Mark David Chapman to 20 years to life, with the caveat that he receive psychological help for the duration of that term. Despite his earlier claims of never going to appeal my sentence... Chapman has so far had a total of 12 appeals for parole denied, the most recent in 2022, when it was deemed that releasing Chapman would, and I quote, be incompatible with the welfare of society. Oh, and in case you're wondering, his 13th appeal is scheduled for 2024. But the chances Chapman ever sees the light of day again, are, in my opinion, slim to none. There are a plethora of conspiracies around that particular novel, The Catcher in the Rye. Indeed, it's believed by some to contain certain trigger words, words which can enable everyday people to do the most heinous crime. And it's that very topic that we will look at in our first ever episode of the Patreon podcast, Cold Case, next week. So don't forget to become a Patreon. Head over to patreon.com forward slash The Deadly Countdown. But what about next week on The Deadly Countdown? Where will episode six take us? If you ever wanted to have a Halloween party, that would be a great place for it. It was a, it was a spooky house out on the edge of town, and it uh, was dark, and there wasn't a sign of life there. 
That was the voice of Milwaukee reporter Dick Leonard describing the house owned by the one and only Ed Gein. So please join me next week for episode six when we take a look at Ed Gein, the literal personification of your worst nightmares. As ever, thank you so much for choosing to spend your time with me here on The Deadly Countdown. But for now, for Mark David Chapman, let's stop the clock. 